All right, we're going to be in Gospel of John this morning, continuing our journey through uh, that book. We'll be in John chapter 8, so if you guys have Bibles, you want to turn there, you want to swipe there on your devices, and feel free to do that. Uh, while you're turning there, uh, I am going to give us just kind of a brief recap here so that we're all uh, on the same page as to where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Jesus is in the midst. He's in the temple area. He's in the, in the midst of an extended dialogue uh, with a group of Jews and Pharisees. And this is probably a significant group of people. Uh, this dialogue has gone on for some time. But in the midst of this dialogue, Jesus has sought to communicate to these people that he is the light of the world. He's the one that they are looking for. He's the long-awaited one, the Messiah. He's invited the spiritually thirsty to come to him and drink, that he is the one who can ultimately satisfy them. He's seeking to reveal himself to them so that they would know who he is and, and to let them know that he is different. Though he looks like them, he is also different in the fact that he is divine. And last week, uh, Nathan, uh, who I listened to his sermon this week and just thought he did a, a phenomenal job, he spoke about uh, how the devil was these individuals' father. Satan was their father. And so part of this uh, dialogue that's going on is Jesus saying, is, my father is in heaven, but my father is not your father. Your father is the devil. And so it's not surprising that some people that are listening would hear this and think that this is an immensely offensive statement that Jesus is making. And so we find them filled with hate. And this dialogue that is going on between Jesus and this group of Pharisees is filled with tons of acrimony. There is a ton of hatred that is being projected towards Jesus. And so today, we will pick this up in verse 48 of chapter 8, and we're going we're gonna to finish out chapter 8 uh, this morning. So I'm going to read beginning in John 8, 48. The Jews answered... Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to Jesus, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God, but you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He sought and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. All right, so let's... Let's pick it up in verse 48 to walk through this. Jesus' opponents begin by asking this question. And they say, are we not right? 
And, and I think even in the phrasing of this question, we should note the, the moral and intellectual superiority that is inherent in how they're even asking the question of Jesus. We've seen that the Jews are pompous, that they're defensive, that they're arrogant towards Jesus and the message that he is bringing. Now, Jesus has said that their father is the devil, and their works display sin that is opposing God. So, uh, if we would go to Romans 1, where Paul is writing to the church in Rome, he's talking about giving description of people who are opponents of God. And, and some of the descriptions that he gives are that they are full of envy, that they are full of murder, they're full of deceit and maliciousness, they are slanders and haters of God, they are haughty. So even in the midst of this conversation, we see Jesus saying that their father is the devil, and the way in which they've responded to him previously and after this as well is proving Jesus' point. These are descriptions of these individuals and how they are reacting towards Jesus. Now, I think it's interesting in this little dialogue, Jesus has kind of come against their theological claims. He's rebuffed them, and so they now are resorting to insult. That, that's what they're coming to Jesus with. They, they've given up on the theological arguments, and they're going to just seek to insult Jesus. So we see two insults here. First of all, they call him a Samaritan. So we talked about this a number, about four chapters ago in John 4. So Jesus was traveling from southern Israel to northern Israel, and to get there, he went through the middle part, which is called Samaria. And Samaria is named that because Assyrians had driven out uh, many of the Jews there, and then they had transplanted uh, many of their people. And so what happened is the Assyrians then intermarried with the remaining Jews who were there, and so it created this space that was later known as Samaria. Now, in Jesus' day, Samaritans were basically considered half-breeds because they're not true Jew. And so they're looked at as the dogs of the country. And so for them to call Jesus as a Samaritan is basically for them to tell him, you are scum. You are the lowest of the low. And then they say, is it not right that you have a demon? So Jesus has, has just stated that their father is the devil, right? So it's, it's almost like two kids out on the playground, like, uh, they're not being very original, right? Like, you're dumb, and then the reply back is, you're dumb, in a sense. And so Jesus says, your father is the devil, and they're like, oh, is it not right that you have a demon? So they're basically just throwing back Jesus' idea, uh, which Jesus' idea is true, theirs is not. But to talk about, I want to talk a little bit about uh, demons and just the demonic for a few moments. So I'm going to go to Matthew 12. Uh, verses 22 to 26. I want to read this. Then a demon oppressed a man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So, in my house, Casey and I, we, when we were growing up, we both really enjoyed sports. So we played sports. Okay, so we now are encouraging our children to play sports as well. A wide variety of them. Um, but there is a list of sports that we would prefer them not to play. And at the top of that list is hockey. Okay, we do not want our kids to play hockey for a variety of reasons. One, it's a very expensive sport. And so 
Uh, it, it's also a pretty consuming sport when, in terms of ring time and when, when they have to practice and so forth. So it's pretty consuming. So uh, those are a couple of reasons. I, I've got a personal reason as well. Um, when I was in college, uh, there was one time, I played college basketball, so there was one time I had to go into the hockey locker room and that thing was so stanky, I, I could not believe it. So in my mind, I also have this reason, like I just don't even want the stank in my house to have to deal with that in any way. Uh, the other thing is I don't like being cold. And if you're a hockey fan, you basically just have to live in the cold. It, I, I feel like I get cold when I'm in a, a hockey rink. So here's the thing. We don't offer hockey to our kids. We don't prefer for them to play hockey. So it would be really stupid of us, right, to encourage them to play hockey if we don't want them to play hockey. So our, our house of no hockey would be laid waste. It, it would crumble, and, and I would have a cold and bitter existence if our kids really wanted to do that. So if Jesus has a demon, and he's casting out demons, he, he's basically working against himself, right? And so this argument that the Pharisees are throwing at him just doesn't make sense. He is known for, for casting out demons, for getting rid of them. For that, so for them now to accuse him of having a demon makes no sense whatsoever. He's just creating more work for himself if that's what he's really doing. So as it pertains to the demonic, uh, because we can read these stories in the Bible, I think, and be like, oh yeah, that, that was something that Jesus dealt with, but we don't really have to deal with that anymore. But uh, I want to help us to feel this a little bit today, because the reality is all of us feel the effects of demons every day. It's just part of our reality. We oftentimes don't think about it, uh, and, and many of us maybe just don't even want to interact with the idea. But Ephesians 6.12 reads this way, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this is saying that we don't wrestle like when we're driving behind someone in the fast lane and we just want them to get out of the way, like our wrestle in that moment is not against that person that is inciting anger in us. It's not against flesh and blood. Our wrestle, our fight is against spiritual forces. And so our greatest battle day in and day out is not against people. It is against spiritual forces. So there are spiritual forces, demonic forces that woo us, that affect us day in and day out. So let me give you one example that I think all of us probably have had in front of our eyes over the last number of weeks, okay? So the agenda of the white supremacists, okay? The white supremacist agenda. I would say, is a demonic agenda. For anyone to believe that because they are white, that then they are superior to another race, would say that that, that is very anti-God, anti-gospel, that it is demonic. N nobody is better because of the color of their skin. So I heard a pastor say uh, within the past few weeks that heaven would be a white supremacist hell because heaven is going to be filled with the nations, right? The nations are going to fill heaven. God is going to call the nations, every tribe and tongue, to himself. And that in and of itself would be a white supremacist hell. So many people would look at the agenda of white supremacy and say, that is ugly. Now, those in the movement would not say that's ugly, all right? But, but many of us would say the demonic is ugly in many senses. But 
the demonic is not always ugly. Okay? It gets dressed up in beautiful ways as well. So m maybe another way that we can talk about the demonic in, that we encounter maybe on a regular basis would be, whether it's explicit or implicit, but it's, it's pervasive in our culture is that, is that of pornography. The debasement of humanity, looking at humanity in such a way for pleasure, abusing, taking advantage of God's creation, that is demonic. And so it, oftentimes people will seek to dress it up in such a way that it might look beautiful, but the reality is the demonic is completely about the destruction of people. And this is why Jesus has come, to call people out of that. Even if we're running after something we think it's good and right, it's beautiful, Jesus wants to save us from anything that is connected to the kingdom of darkness. So this is the reality for all of us. Somehow, some way, every day, we are affected by spiritual forces, and Jesus wants to rescue us from that. So in reply to these individuals saying that he has a demon, Jesus addresses it or answers them very directly. He says, I do not have a demon. Just a very short, curt answer. I can appreciate this. I sent an email to somebody uh, this week, and my wife was on the email, and I, I said at the beginning of the email, I said, I apologize, this is very brief. I answered the questions, I said everything very, like, as short of sentences as I could, and I communicated the information that needed to be communicated. And Casey talked to me later that day, she's like, I saw that email you sent. It's like, yeah? She's like, yeah, that was really brief and direct. And I was like, yeah, that's what I was going for. And she's like, I sent one too. Just, it was a little more flowery, just to kind of help you with that. So she's helping me, covering my bases. But I love the fact that, that Jesus at times can just be so direct. He just says, I do not have a demon. And then he continues in verse 50, dropping down to verse 50, he says, Yet I do not seek my own glory, which is a very profound statement, but we're going to dig into this in a few moments because the idea of glory comes up again here in a few verses. So then in verse 51, Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So this idea of keeping Jesus' word, uh, people could interact with this in a number of ways. So maybe some would read keeping his word and think about hiding it in my heart. Like I, I want to keep it close to me. Uh, others would read keeping Jesus' word and think about, and this is probably how most people think about it, is obedience, right? These are the words that Jesus has said, and this now is what I need to do. This is how I obey Jesus' words. And, but if we're going to obey Jesus' words, if we're going to keep his words, if we're going to know his words, like, we have to know what he has said, right? So just a few things that Jesus has said in the last number of chapters in John— in John 3, Jesus said, or uh, Jesus said that he came to save the world. He didn't come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned, so he was coming to save the world. John 4, Jesus said, I am the Messiah. In John 6, Jesus says, believe in me. I am the one who has been sent from God. Believe, believe. And he continually exhorts people to believe in him. So if we believe what Jesus said, then belief is going to lead to following, to following him in some way, following him so that we will not taste death. Conversely, if someone does not believe, if we're not profoundly shaped by Jesus' words, that he came to save the world, or that he alone is the Messiah, if we're not profoundly shaped by these realities, it will lead then to death and to condemnation. And so what we find interestingly here in this interaction is that Jesus is putting the emphasis on his words, right? He's saying, hear my words, know my words, believe my words. And then the Jews, their immediate response to Jesus is, we have words for you, right? That, and, and their immediate words for Jesus in verse 52 are, 
Now we know that you have a demon. Now we know that you have a demon. So they're basically saying, Abraham died. The prophets died. But you're going to say that mere mortals are not going to die, that they will live, that they will not taste death. And what we see going on here is what we've talked about a number of times uh, throughout this series, is that there's this mingling going on as Jesus is talking of both the physical and the spiritual realm. But what's going on is that the Jews are only conceiving of the physical, not the spiritual. So Nathan had mentioned this verse last week. He, he talked about how the Jews, they were seeing, but not perceiving. They're hearing, but they're not understanding. And, and honestly, this is, uh, from my perspective, this is something I just wrestle with continuously as a pastor thinking about uh, shepherding people, trying to watch over people and care for people. This is one of the things that can keep me up at night. The fact that we can hear Jesus' words. We can even know what he says, but we don't really know. It doesn't really penetrate our hearts it just kind of, we hear it in one ear and out the other, but it's not grabbing hold of us and really shaping us in profound ways. But that's what Jesus is going for. He wants us to see the beauty of the gospel and then ask throughout the days that we live, how does the gospel inform this? Whatever it might be, how does Jesus want to shape us in this regard and, and this is one of these, those things that I plead with Jesus for you guys on. I don't want for you guys to walk through life just wandering or even assuming that you just get it, but that you would really wrestle with this reality. Am I believing this? How is this being evidenced in my life, in my heart? How is Jesus grasping hold of every part of my life? How is my life gospel-centered? How am I being shaped to become more like Jesus? We must know Jesus' words and then eat them. Have this daily, repeated interaction with him. He, he's not just like a vending machine that we just go and put some money in and then push the buttons for whatever we want when we want that. His words are intended to shape us always in every part of our lives. Not when it's convenient for us, not when uh, we just need some comfort or to defend us when we feel like we need that. His words are intended to shape everything, to completely change the landscape of our lives. That's why we need to hear his words. And then in verses 52 and 53. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And then we have these two questions. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And then the second question, who do you make yourself out to be? So they ask this first question of Jesus. Are you greater than than our father Abraham. When they're asking this question of Jesus, they're expecting a negative answer from him, but immediately they don't get any answer at all, but Jesus will answer this. So we're going to come back around to this in just a moment. The second question, though, that they ask of Jesus, who do you make yourself out to be? And I think in this, we see again that they're just completely missing the point. Jesus hasn't been talking in his interaction with them at all about what he's making himself to be, right? What has he done? He continually points to his father. I look at him. I listen to what he is telling me. I am doing his will. He is the one who has sent me. He is the judge. I do nothing outside of of my Father. I don't seek my own glory. And, and in this, 
he would want them to hear, I'm not making myself anything. I don't want you to make yourself anything. But this is the goal of much of their lives. They love their positions of power and of sway, their importance. And he's calling them out of that. But we even see this modeled in his life as well. And then in verse 54, Jesus answers them to these questions. He says, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. We're going to look at these in tandem then with verse 50 that we just skipped earlier uh, when Jesus said, Yet I do not seek my own glory. So in these comments on glory, Jesus' intention here is to connect any personal glory in him to his Father, to deflect it from himself to his Father, the one who has sent him. So he's not trying to take the glory on for himself. He's saying, it's my Father. Look at him. He is the glorious one. Now, Jesus' comments here about glory, I think, are really astounding as we consider who Jesus is. So, let's look at who he is. Uh, Specifically, we're going to go to Colossians 1, as Paul writes uh, about Jesus there. He says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. These are lofty words about Jesus. And Paul, in in Colossians 1, he, he just continues on in this vein as well, heralding the excellencies, the glory that is found in Jesus. He is before all things. All things were created by him and for him. If we read these words, we understand them, we can conclude that Jesus deserves glory, right? These are massively huge words about him, about his glory. He deserves glory if we look at what he's doing, what he has done. But this God-man says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If Jesus were to praise or honor or glorify himself or even to pursue those things for himself, he's saying that any praise or honor or glory that he would receive then would be nothing. It would be nothing at all. So this man that we would look at and say he deserves glory, he should pursue glory, he's rejecting that. He's not seeking it at all all. So I think we can look at Jesus and we can learn things for ourselves in regards to this. Because I don't know about you, but uh, this is not oftentimes how I think. Like it is so natural for me to seek glory, to, to want something, to have, to gain affirmation from people. And so this when I hear this, when I, Jesus, I hear Jesus talking in this way, like, this presses me. This pushes against kind of the course of my heart in many ways. So I want to I say this. I want you guys to hear this because this isn't popular, uh, but this is very true. The Christian life is not about receiving glory. The Christian life is not about us having God make much of us. It's not about us fulfilling our dreams. The Christian life is not about God giving us everything that we think that we want. 
It's not about us. And this should rattle us. Like we should, no matter where we're at, this should press us in some way. It's not about us receiving glory. Me standing up here, me planning a church, it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. Us serving whatever capacity it might be, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. And, and I think we feel this because, or we should feel this at, at least, because we want to advance in our careers. We want to succeed. We want to hit our next fit, fitness goal. We want to accomplish something. We want to grow in certain areas of our lives. And let me be clear, like there's nothing evil in those things. There's nothing evil in wanting to pursue growth, advancement. But we oftentimes want recognition and incentives and to be affirmed because we want our name to be great, not Jesus. But Jesus is saying here that if we make much of ourselves or engage in activities where we're going to pursue that end, that it will be about us, that any glory or praise or honor that we receive in that is nothing. If it terminates on us, then it's nothing. Though, in the moment, we will receive some form of adulation, right? And all of us probably have experienced that. But even in that, Jesus is saying that's nothing. So, um, most of you know, and I mentioned this earlier, Casey and I were at this assessment center a couple of weeks ago. And uh, when you go through these assessment centers, like, they just pry into everything. Like, they, they looked into the things that I look at on the internet. They looked at our finances in depth. Like, they look at, they're going deep dive on our marriage. Like, they're looking at so much stuff and asking us lots of questions that are really invasive. And it's really good and helpful and productive. As we go through this, Casey and I, we see things and we hear things and we're learning a lot as we go through this process. And, and what comes out of this then is, well, hopefully anyways, our intentional conversations that happen between Casey and I. And, and so one of the ways, and I think, I mean, this happens pretty regularly, but one of the big things that came out of this for us was there's some significant ways that I can grow in how I love my wife. And so we've been having conversations about what does this look like and how can I grow in this and, and so forth. And uh, this past week, I, I've not felt physically well. It's just not been a good week physically for me. And, and yet, I, I've had it on my mind in the midst of fatigue that I want, I want to grow in these areas of loving her well, serving her well. Even, even though I don't have the energy that I feel like I want to have or normally have, like I still want to love her and care for her in meaningful ways. Now, Hypothetically speaking, okay, I want to love her and serve her well in, in this. And if, if my intention in this is so that I can get stuff from Casey, so that she will make much of me, if we go through this process and, and I'm trying to sacrificially love her and she's like, you're, you're sick again. Like I am, like in her mind, I'm just annoyed, right? And, and whether this is conscious or unconscious, let's say there's distance that begins to happen, and she's not recognizing what I'm seeking to give to her. If my desire in all of this is that I would receive glory, I am going to be sorely disappointed, and my attempts at love are very quickly going to turn into hate, right? Because I'm not getting what I'm looking for. Or, Let's say that she does notice that I am seeking to love her in this way. She notices the effort that, that's being put forth, and she acknowledges that. Jesus is saying here that the glory that she would extend to me, that she would affirm me with, that that also would be nothing. 
but, but I'm in a much worse spot at that point, right? Because I think, I can think in my mind, oh, I am loving her. I am knocking it out of the park, right? And yet, because it's about me looking good, making much of me, Jesus is saying that's nothing. But that would not be on my radar, especially if she saw that. And she's affirming me in that. And so I think... In Jesus' words here, we have to take a good, hard look at our own hearts and lives and really ask ourselves, where are we yearning for attention? Who do we go to to give us attention, to give us what we're really looking for? Because at the end of the day, the point of it all is that Jesus would be made much of. That is where our joy will be found. Not in us receiving some glory that we think we really want, but ultimately our joy, our satisfaction is going to be found in Jesus being made much of. So there's this aspect of us diagnosing what, what's going on in our heart. Where am I seeking glory in selfish ways? Where am I, where's this self-glorification popping up in my heart? But on the other side, of this, kind of redirecting our affections elsewhere. In really practical ways, uh, we can ask ourselves, how does our surrender of glory, okay, so giving our glory elsewhere, how, how can that look in everyday life? Because this is, the, this is a way in which others can glimpse the gospel in our hearts, where they can encounter Jesus in shadowy ways, so, it's going to look different for all of us, but just a few examples, maybe. So, if you're sitting on the couch with a roommate, a friend, a family member, and, and you're watching TV, one small way that we can eschew self-glory is, is to ask the person or people we're watching with, would you like to watch a show? Or what would you like to watch? To, to not make it about what we want in that moment. Or if you're going out to eat, to let somebody else decide where it is that we are going to go out to eat. Maybe for some of you, it's just verbalizing this three-word phrase that at times is so hard. I love you to communicate that in a heartfelt way to someone that needs to hear that affirmation. Maybe for you it's saying no to a certain job prospect for the, the good of your family or uh, whatever it might be, the good of your church or whatever. Or, or maybe it's also saying yes to a job that you might not desire but might be helpful for your family or your church. Or maybe it, it looks like, who do I know or who do I not know well that needs encouragement? And, and seeking to encourage them in some way. So seeking gospel advancement. That's how we can push against this idea uh, or this tendency for us to want to seek self-glorification, to not make it about us. How can we seek the advance of the gospel in and around our lives? I love that Jesus' explicit statement, and I'm talking here about when he says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. And when he says, yet I do not seek my own glory. In, in these explicit statements, he's also implying something else. So he's, he's there. He's in this conversation. He's pointing to his father, who's the one who says, should get the glory. So he's not there seeking the glory, and yet he's 
there engaging with people who are lacking glory but yet pursuing glory. So what's he doing there? He's pleading with people for their salvation. He's not seeking glory in and of himself, but yet he's seeking to connect them to the one who is glorious. And I love this fact that we see him. This is what he does. Like, he rejects or pushes off glory when he deserves it and seeks to give it or connect others to the glorious one, though they deserve judgment, right? Yet he seeks to connect them to the glorious one, to reveal himself, to draw them to his Father. We read earlier, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And we hear this call for ourselves in this, that we would become like Jesus. We would throw off these lesser motivations of whatever we think glory looks like in our earthly context. We would throw that off and we would come under people. We would not seek our own glory. We would seek Jesus' glory. And Jesus says, Abraham got this. Abraham understood this to an extent. In verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So we don't know the specific event that's being referred here, referred to here by Jesus. It, it could be uh, when God's calling Abraham in Genesis 12. It could be something related to the miraculous circumstances surrounding Abraham's son, Isaac. Uh, it could, could have something to do with another aspect of the covenant or the promised land. Or We don't know exactly how Abraham saw Jesus' day, but he saw it. And he was glad. And, and what we do know is that Abraham was saved by faith. You see this in Galatians. We see this in the book of Hebrews. Abraham was saved by faith. And, and in his faith, he was anticipating the day of the Lord. He was anticipating the day that, and we know the day of the Lord being the day of Jesus Christ. And the Jews now, when Jesus says this in verse 56, they're going to reply Uh, to Jesus regarding Jesus' age. You're not even 50 years old. And you knew Abraham, you were before Abraham, and, and Jesus is going to say in verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. Which is one of the most explicit divine statements that Jesus makes in all of Scripture. This is a phrasing used intentionally by Jesus that's a clear allusion to how God self-identified himself to Moses back in Exodus. As he was calling Moses out and he was going to, he's calling him to himself so that he can use Abraham or Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. He reveals himself to Abraham or to Moses as I am. And, and the Jews know this. They know this very clear. That's why they pick up stones in verse 58 to stone Jesus, to put him to death. So our gospel application this morning, just a couple things. First of all, we must know Jesus' words. We must know what he has said And then trust him. Entrust ourselves to what he has said, to how he has revealed himself. In the midst of these Jews, these Pharisees, defying Jesus, disbelieving Jesus, in the midst of this conversation, they're fixated on his egregious sin. The fact that he's saying he's greater than, than Abraham, but they're, they're fixated on his sin, supposed sin, of doubting his supremacy over death, okay? So they're saying, you, you, you're not greater than death. You can't stop death. They're so focused on this, but if they would stop and think, what is Jesus doing? What has he already done in his life? They have seen him. They have heard reports of him coming against 
overcoming the effects of death. Physical, spiritual, emotional. He heals people who are feeling the effects of death. And he is giving them life when he heals them. He comes to the woman at the well who is spiritually dead, emotionally devastated, and he gives her life. He is overcoming death. If they would look at his life, they don't want to. Their hearts are so hard, so opposed to him, that all they can do is fixate on the very things that they want to focus on as they seek their own glory, and they're blind to the reality of who Jesus really is. They need to hear his words. They need to believe his words. And the call for us is no different. Hear Jesus' words. Look and see how he has revealed himself to us. And believe with everything in you. Believe in Jesus. And then as we believe and trust in him, as his truth and his words grip us and take hold of our hearts, the shape that this takes is it will cause us to relent in our pursuit of glory, seeking our own glory. It will rewire the desires of our hearts so that it's, it's not about us. It's not about reaching this level. It's not about our name being on this wall. It's not about people admiring us. It's about people being connected to Jesus and trusting in him. Psalm 115, one great instruction for us. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Oh, that our lives would resound with this, that it would not be about us, but that in and through our lives they would give glory to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So, Part of what we've talked about this morning is this reality, Jesus saying, you will not taste death, that people will not taste death. Now, we know that Jesus himself will taste death, and not just any old death, but a horrific death, so that people would have forgiveness of sins. He dies his death to purchase the forgiveness of of sins. The forgiveness of sins of those who are opposing him in this dialogue that we're talking about this morning. He seeks their forgiveness. So we're going to take a few moments, we do this first Sunday of every month, uh, to centralize communion, the Lord's Supper, to remember that Jesus has died for us, that he went to the cross, which seemed, and it not just seemed, it is, full of shame, right? It's a horrific, brutal reality that Jesus endured. But in his death, in his identification with us, it's the greatest way we can identify with him is in his death, we also see glory. Because he resurrected. He raised up from the grave. He conquered death. And then as he raises up, we look back and we see, oh, there is glory in the shame of the cross. Glory for you and I, for those who will trust in Jesus. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to remember what Jesus has done on the cross, giving his body, letting his blood be shed for the forgiveness of sins so that today we don't need to walk in slavery so that today we can relinquish this desire to want to pursue glory from others we can let him have it all and in that we are connected to glory in that we will be satisfied in the ways that we are really looking for it. So in a moment, the band's going to come up. They're going to play um, a number of songs. And anytime during those songs, you guys can come up 
and you can partake of the bread and the cup and you can take those back to your seat and you can reflect upon who Jesus is and what he has done. We practice open communion here so you don't, there's no class you have to take. Um, It's for anyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. If Jesus is your Lord, he's over your life, he rules over your life, and he's your Savior, he has purchased the forgiveness of your sins. We want to invite you guys to come and to participate, to celebrate, to remember who he is and what he has done on your behalf. So you guys stand with me. I'm going to read a passage of scripture from 1 Corinthians, and then I'm going to pray. 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for the fact that you have walked a road that we cannot walk, and you have died a death that we cannot die. You have purchased the forgiveness of sins for us. Help us to believe this word about you afresh. Help us to see the glory that is connected in you on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring, for suffering on our behalf. Help us to see the depth of this sacrifice and the beauty of this sacrifice in greater ways. In your great name, I pray. Amen.